I was in the car um, going out from Lim yesterday afternoon. And you know, as you go um, past the Jolly Thresher and is it cost cutter on the right hand side, and you come down the hill and you get that view. Do you know the view I'm talking about? Where you can see right over to the Peak District, you can see city centre Manchester with this ever increasing skyline. And just occasionally, it catches you and you go, wow. Almost every other time you drive past and you don't think about it. You know, sometimes I think there is a danger with familiarity, isn't there? That we get so familiar with things that we forget to stand back and go, wow. And I think part of the issue with the, the, the narratives around Christmas is that they are so amazing, but we read them so frequently that sometimes we just forget to stand back and go, wow. So I'm hoping this morning that as we delve in a little bit into this passage that we could preach on for weeks and weeks, there's so much here, um, that actually we will see something of the wow of what God is doing. This passage does not record a normal event in any normal sense of the word normal. Um, I can't imagine any of us have had an experience like the one that Mary had in Luke chapter 1. But the God who brings this message through Gabriel to Mary is the same God who is at work today. And he's the same God who speaks to us, who calls us by name, and who calls us to um, walk in his footsteps. Now, some people have read this passage and tried to dismiss it. They're saying, well, this is not unusual in ancient literature. It wasn't uncommon, apparently, in the first century to try and you know, put yourself on a high platform by saying that you were descended from a god. Um, so you might be the emperor of Rome and say, well, actually, one of the Greek gods is my ancestor, and this puts my power beyond, sort of, you know, nobody can then challenge you. But just remember, we've been in Luke's gospel much of this term, haven't we? Remember who Luke is? He's a doctor. He's a historian. He's a man who is able to write in eloquent um, Greek. And he is trying to write history. He is writing history here. He is not writing speculation. And so the angelic visitation surrounding the birth of Jesus and John the Baptist, they're, they're really unique because they are the first time in 400 years that God has spoken to his people. Imagine being there after God has been silent for all that time and suddenly, from the throne room of heaven, the archangel Gabriel appears to you. So let's picture the scene for a moment. Mary, a young woman, we don't know her exact age because the scripture doesn't tell us, but some later sources suggest that she's somewhere between 12 and 17 years old. So she's barely in her teenage years. She's at the kind of age where it would be normal for somebody to, to get engaged to be married. Joseph is probably not much older, possibly 19, 20, probably not much older than that, but again, we can't be sure. She's betrothed to Joseph. Now, what that meant in the first century was that she's already made promises to him, but they're not yet living together as husband and wife. So this is a, there has already been a marriage contract of sorts exchanged, but it's not yet been fully completed. And so the archangel Gabriel, from the throne room of God, comes and says to her, Greetings, you who are highly favored. What an introduction to be given as, um, as Gabriel comes into the room. And you know what happens then? Well, the angel says, do not be afraid. It seems to be the customary things that angels say around Christmas time, although I'm not sure it would particularly have settled my nerves at that moment. So Mary, this young girl, she's understandably troubled by what is going on. But then we get to Gabriel's message. If you've got a Bible in front of you, look at verses 31 to 33. You will conceive and give birth 
to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, the first shock is that she finds out she's going to have a baby, and she's not slept with anyone, she's a virgin. That's a big, big shock. The second shock is who this baby is going to be. This is not just a normal baby. Lots of normal babies are born every day. But this is an extra special baby. This is a baby that is given four names in this passage. Son of the Most High. He will have the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants. And his kingdom will know no end. This is prophetic fulfillment coming to life at this moment. Look at this from Isaiah 9 verse 6. We've heard some of these names already this morning. Can you see the similarity between Gabriel's message and what is spoken by the prophet? For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, Mary's baby is going to be a royal baby, a royal ruler, a ruler in the line of David, but not with the human father, but with God himself as his father. Now, David is the ancient king of Israel, their greatest king, but he was still a flawed human being. But the promises of the Old Testament was that out of the house of David would come one who would rule God's people and whose kingdom would know no end. And it's at this point that incarnation takes place. That Jesus, who is both fully God and fully human, comes to earth. Now, lots of people over the years have read this passage and thought, you know, this is just all made-up stuff. Come on, Luke. Come on, Matthew, you're going into fairy tale here. This doesn't look like the kind of stuff we could believe in. You know, you've got it all wrong. Surely there must be another explanation. But I want us to think about a couple of things. Is that in the first century Jewish mind, and then going on in the Christian mind, was the idea that God is fully creator. God calls this world out of nothing to be what it is to see today, to be all the things that we we see. Anyone tell me the six elements that make up the human body primarily? Not all the trace elements, but the main six. I had to look up Wikipedia for this. Yeah, I can hear most of these things coming out. Do you want to? So oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, and phosphorus. Look around the the room today. Say hello to those six elements in front of you. But out of this concoction of dust and gas comes the music of Bach comes the paintings of Monet, comes the random goal-scoring ability of Bellingham, comes all the things that I can do, that you can do, that don't seem to make any sense if we were just random, because God is a creator God. So if I believe God can make me out of six things and a load of trace elements as well that I won't get into, why not this virgin birth that happens here? Why is that such a big deal? Simon Fawcett sent me um, a video this week. We're just going to watch a, a a clip of it from um, Dr. Amy Or Ewing, talking on Premier Christian Radio about evidence for the virgin birth. Just watch this. It's about five minutes. Is there any evidence for the virgin birth? I feel like that's a very contested thing, isn't it? It's a reason why lots of people reject Christianity because they think that's a ridiculous idea. It's very outdated. It's it's a miracle. We don't believe in miracles. But is there any evidence that we can draw upon for this? Yeah. Um, 
So as with any miracle that's that's recorded, you know, um, we can approach that sort of text with a degree of scepticism. And certainly people in our age would approach, you know, a claim of a miracle with a, with a degree of scepticism. What I think is fascinating about the gospel accounts is that that is acknowledged. So the central relationship of Mary's life is with her betrothed her boyfriend whatever you know they're not married yet Joseph and when Joseph discovers that Mary's pregnant he decides to it says to sort of put her to one side quietly because he was an honorable man he didn't want to shame her but the clear implication of the of the text is Joseph understands how babies are made he knows he hasn't slept with her so he concludes a natural reason for the pregnancy so we're not dealing with a religious text that assumes a sort of supernatural bubble that we've entered into. And Joseph goes, we're in the Bible now, people. It must be a virgin <laughs> conception. No, he assumes a natural reason for the pregnancy. And only when he himself has an encounter with an angel is he prepared to upend his life and go with this. So within the text, at least deductively, um, there's an acknowledgement of natural law and the natural processes um, and, you know, the power dynamics of the age. And I think that's really interesting and powerful evidence for, for this actually being true. Second piece of evidence that we get again in the text is this relationship that Mary has with Elizabeth, her cousin. So Elizabeth is an older person um, past, so she's gone through the menopause. It says she's past childbearing age and she's married to Zachariah, who's quite a high profile priest, one of the ones who's allowed into the temple. And so it's a known fact that this couple cannot have children. They've never had a child. And, you know, barrenness was a huge shame in that culture. They've never had a child. They're very old. It's humanly, physically impossible for them to have a child. And, through an angel and the prophetic word, Elizabeth is able to have a baby. And that baby goes on to be John the Baptist. So that's, in a way, a more publicly verifiable miracle. Because everyone who knows them, and that's a lot of people, because he's got a public role in the society, know it is physically impossible for her to conceive. And she has conceived now, in that context, the word given about John the Baptist is that he's this forerunner. He's meant to go ahead of the Lord. And Mary, this teenager who's as yet unmarried, goes to congratulate her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth doesn't know anything that's happened with Mary. She doesn't know from the relatives that Mary's pregnant. Mary walks into Elizabeth's house and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, the baby in her leaps. Now, anyone who's been pregnant knows that that would be notable. You know, when I had twins in there, you know, they were sort of elbowing each other. You could see it on the scan. You could really feel all that movement going on. And she notes this, this baby does something more than just me. This baby leaps. And Elizabeth is inspired and says to Mary, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So Elizabeth prophesies that Mary is pregnant with her Lord, with God. I mean, it's a, just another layer of public verification that, that, that this miracle happened. Now, obviously, 
you know, if you're approaching the text of the Bible as a materialist and you've ruled out the possibility of anything miraculous and you've said, you know, only the natural world exists and only um, material things have any kind of reality, then even that sort of evidence from people's testimony of the time, you're going to reject it, but you're rejecting it on the basis of your... Um, your pre-commitment, your a, what you call an a priori commitment, your in advance commitment to the impossibility of the supernatural. And what I would want to argue is that that in and of itself is not a rational position. That's a, a position that is almost a faith, that's an ideology that you are then imposing on the text. And I think if you approach the world and the text with at least an openness to the possibility that this natural world was brought into existence by a God who actually exists, who's the author of creation, then that God would be able to intervene miraculously in this world. Um, but obviously, if you count out that possibility out of hand, then you're not going to be open to any kind of evidence. So sorry, that was a really long answer. Yeah, that was really Okay, thank you. Can we have the lights on? Hopefully that was interesting. Um, if you want to listen to the whole thing, go on YouTube, it's, it's all there. Um, but I think it's really fascinating, that whole thing about the miraculous, about miracles. And I sometimes wonder if when God works in our lives, it brings us up short, because we realize that God is God, God and we are not, and that we have to then listen to what God is saying. Tom Wright puts it like this, and I, I found this really quite helpful, if I can find it, not that again. Um, Perhaps some of the fuss and bother about, what Mary, about whether Mary could have conceived Jesus without a human father is because deep down we don't want to think that there might be a king who could claim this sort of absolute allegiance. That if we dismiss the God of the miraculous, actually Jesus can't be Lord at all, and so I'm still in control of my own life. Whereas actually the claim of this passage is that Jesus can claim to be fully Lord because God is his father. What an amazing thing we find here. So what does Mary do with this news? Well, sometimes when we get news, we, we don't quite know how to react. I was in the church office on Thursday, and somebody was in here whose daughter had just passed their driving test. And they were literally going around. Many of you will know who that was. And they were going around with a huge grin on their face, um, hugging everybody, smiling, sort of cheering and whatever. Um, and sometimes when we get brilliant news, that's how we respond. But sometimes when we get news, we don't know what to do with it. I don't know if you can ever think of a time when perhaps you've been to the doctor or you've been to the dentist and they've told you what the course of treatment is going to be and you've sort of blanked and you've not been able to remember or you've not had the clarity of thought that you'd want at that time. Well, what happens to Mary? She's been given the good news of the ages and actually she thinks of a very sensible question to ask. How will this be? How will this be? How on earth is what you're saying going to happen? It's very reasonable. And Gabriel takes the question as being out of a good heart, and he then gives the response. And he says, it's by the Holy Spirit. This is all going to be God's work. And then we get Mary's astounding response in verse 38. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Just think for a moment what that means for Mary to say yes to God. Mary bypasses the whole social order, the whole expectations that will be on a young woman to say yes to God who has just showed up to her 
with a message by Gabriel. Now, as we've seen, she's probably in her mid-teens. Now, our youngest is 15. If he came home one day and says, Dad, I'm going to join a monastery. That's highly unlikely, by the way. Or, Dad, I'm going to join the SAS, which might be slightly more likely, but hadn't consulted with me and Claire. We hadn't talked about it. We hadn't had a conversation. I would be thinking, come on, we need to talk about this. This is a massive life decision. If he came and he said, I'm going to go and serve God here, there, and everywhere, we would still probably want to have that conversation because that's the kind of worldview that we fit into. Now, Mary, at this point, is legally an adult, but she is betrothed to Joseph, which I think brings another dimension in because we're at a point in history where it was a very patriarchal society where women were not only subservient to men but were also the property, effectively, of men. And so, actually... In a cultural setting, what Mary should do is say, hold on, Gabriel, I need to go and ask my husband or my, my fiancé. I need to get his permission to say yes to this event. Because she realizes that Joseph will think what any natural man would think, that Mary has had an affair. There's only one way in the first century that babies were made. What does Joseph do? Well, let's have a look in Matthew 1, 18 to 19. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. He thought the normal thing had happened. She'd gone off with another man, she'd had an affair, and she was now pregnant. And so he wants to just get rid of her quietly. He doesn't want to do it publicly to bring shame, but quietly. It requires an angelic visitation to Joseph for him to then change his mind. But the key thing here is that Mary's yes to God trumps every other yes that she should possibly be thinking about in her life. I think that is the really key thing. She says yes to God before she talks to anybody else. Right at the start of the accounts of the life of Jesus is a woman risking everything to say yes to God. Yes to the kingdom of the Messiah. You know, I think this is just worth noting because Jesus, right the way through his ministry, is the one who comes and liberates the voices of women to say yes to God first and foremost. We see it when uh, Mary and Martha are sat at the feet of Jesus being taught. Jesus says, you are my disciples. You can listen to what I'm saying. Unthinkable in the first century. Who is it who witnesses the resurrection of Jesus, first of all? Yeah, women. Women at the tomb, isn't it? They weren't even counted as credible witnesses in the first century. And here is Jesus coming and saying, you can witness this firsthand. You are the ones who can see. In his actions, Jesus challenges a social order that actually elevated men and downgraded women. But there's more here. There's more that goes on, actually, in the nativity um, sort of narratives. Because later on, in the events around the nativity, who turns up to see the infant Jesus? Well, we get the shepherds, who are probably Jewish, but who else? Magi, where do they come from? The east. We don't know exactly where, possibly Parthia, which is in modern-day Iran. And so what we find is that the gospel is thrown open to absolutely everybody. And this good news starts here. The Apostle Paul says it later on in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And here at the start of the kingdom of the Messiah is Mary saying yes off her own back. But think about ourselves today. Are we saying yes to God like Mary does? 
Are we saying yes? You know, it's unlikely, not impossible, but it's unlikely that we will have an angelic visitation. But God does speak to us in many different ways, doesn't he? First of all, there is that call to follow him. That is the first call that God places on anyone. Will you come after? Will you follow Jesus, my son? Will you come and be born again? Will you come and know sins forgiven? Then he calls us to holiness. He calls us to a life of discipleship. Are we saying yes to that at the moment? Or are we sort of backing off a little bit from that call? He calls us to serve him in different ways according to how he's gifted us and what he wants us to do. And he calls us to step out in obedience. Now we can react like Mary, but we can also put up loads of human barriers to why not to say yes to God. We can try and make sure that our narratives fit in with today's social order rather than what God is calling us to do. Um, When I was 18, I've probably told this story loads of times before, so forgive me, but when I was 18, I was going to go and study music and um, I had a place at the RNCM to go and I had a place at Sheffield University. I had the grades I needed needed to go and study and I was all about to go and say yes to, to what the future would hold down that road. And probably about five or six weeks before I was due to go, I felt God speak to me. Don't ask me how, but it would just grew inside of me, this sense that that wasn't the right thing at that point for me to do. And I had to stand back, and I had to think, I'm going to take a year to work out what God is saying. And I ended up going to to theology college at at the end of that. Um, But it was interesting, because at that time, and I I think it's still the same in many ways, the expectation from my school, from my peers was that actually you went to university. And the pressure to conform to that one way of living was intense, actually. What happens when God says, no, you've got to go and do something different? Are we listening if God says, actually, the social order is fine, but actually I want you to do do something different? Are we prepared to say yes? It's always a reminder that the one born in the stable is the one whose yes deserves to be the absolute yes of our lives. Now, don't hear me wrong. This, this passage is not a passage to say, I can come up with the most outlandish scheme possible, not consult those who I love and who care for me, and just say, God has told me to do this, and then go off on some harebrained scheme. It, it's nothing to do with that at all. But this is about responding to the revealed will of God. Where do we find that? Well, it's in Scripture. What would, would anything else do? We'd be a prophetic word or somebody speaking to us or whatever it might be. It will always be in line with what God has said in scripture but are we saying in our hearts that deep yes to god today are we longing to be obedient to his call now god may be calling you today to something very straightforward it may be that you should have invited your neighbor to the j john event last week and you didn't and you're actually thinking should he invite them to the carol service this evening we've just about got time if you quit or you might be thinking shall he invite them to come on christmas day or whatever it is but god is nudging you And he's calling you to obedience. It might be something on a big scale. It might be that actually you've been hanging back from a calling for year after year after year. And actually God is calling you to do this and you just say, no, I've got to live with the social order. And yet the call of God is still there and you live in that discomfort. If that's you this morning, can I just encourage you, say yes to God. He will be there with you. He was there with Mary. Now I've got no um, knowledge of what our issues are today, what God is challenging us about. But I can look at Mary and see that here is somebody who got this thing right. Here is somebody who did exactly what God called of her. And in a few moments, we will come to communion. We will celebrate in bread and wine Jesus, 
the one who became human being for us, who was totally obedient to his Father's will, and he brought our salvation. So is your yes a yes today to Jesus? Is it a yes? Can I pray that it is? And then we'll move into a time of communion. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the example that Mary gives us in this amazing passage. We thank you that it is the most phenomenal passage of Scripture that reminds us of who you are and what you came to do for us. And I just want to pray that as Mary said yes to Jesus, being, um, being in, um, brought into her womb, and then to Jesus being born and living and um, achieving salvation for us, we pray that we too may say yes to you today. So by your Spirit, would you challenge and transform us, we pray. Do a work in us so that our yes may be the same. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.